Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Adam, Kate and Audrey are best friends. They've been best friends since high school. Now they're all living in a suburban share house lifestyle. Careers in place, pubs, live music. I would call them hipster. But Jennifer Down is the one who created them in her book, Our Magic Hour. So Jennifer, would you, do you think you've created hipsters? Um, I was just thinking about that. I think I think hipsters never like to be called hipsters. And so maybe that's part of it. I think of hipsters as being um, a slightly, um, <clears throat> I don't know, a little, like a little bit pretentious and quite self-aware. And I hope that the characters don't come across that way. Um, I think certainly they, they live in an inner suburban community. Mm. Um, well, I think, you know, you can tell their age by they all know and sing the theme song to uh, Around the Twist. Yes. I, I had to laugh at that one. <laughs> that one really does age-specific yeah. um, people. The book, Our Magic Hour, opens with Audrey thinking back over their times together because something horrific has just happened. Yeah, that's right. Um, very early in the book, um, Katie, one of the three um, central childhood friends, commits suicide. So the book really is about suicide and its effect. And we sort of see Adam, one of the friends, we see his frenzied grief through Audrey's eyes. Who does he blame? Um, I don't know that it's so much him apportioning blame. I think he, I think his grief manifests itself in a, in a way that um, is very different to how we see it happen in Audrey and other characters. Mm. Um, he feels things very immediately. He um, was the last one to see. In fact, she left. Yeah, she stayed his at his house, house the night before. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sure there's a certain sense of um, responsibility, um, immediate responsibility. You know, you always hope that you would um, you would notice that kind of unravelling before somebody, you know, mm. commits an act that terrible. Mm. Audrey is also hurting. She can't sleep. She has weird dreams, and I, I like these. Weird dreams of dead dogs frozen in the kiddie pool, of kissing Nick and feeling his teeth crumble in his mouth. So I want you now to read from page 87, and this is about Audrey and her partner Nick. Nick fell asleep quickly. Audrey tensed her muscles and relaxed them one at a time, toes to jaw. She turned on the bedside light and read 60 pages. She plucked her eyebrows, humming to herself in the bathroom. She got back into bed and turned off the light. Nick woke and laid an arm across her. Enough. He squinted at her. Stop fidgeting. I can't sleep. Put all your body parts to sleep, one by one. I did. Guess it didn't work. Guess it didn't, she echoed. He touched her face, but his eyes were already flickering closed. Audrey imagined disappearing through the mattress fibres. She could feel something leaking out of her pores, ready to poison everyone else. She thought of how neat and private Katie's sadness had been. It had built up like the salt crystals they'd grown in school, climbing, climbing. She missed Katie. She was sorry beyond all endurance, against all reason. She wanted to wake up Nick, but she had nothing to tell him. Nothing to tell him. So how, 
How does all of this affect their relationship? Um, I think in a, in a sort of much quieter um, but no less devastating way than the way in which um, Adam feels his grief. It, um, Audrey's a very contained character and she's, she's told that by her friends and family members. She's frequently reminded of how restrained she is emotionally. Um, and I think it, that's sort of um, duplicitous or misleading because she's feeling the grief no less acutely but at a sort of subterranean level. Her grief is certainly well written and when she does express it to herself, it's I keep getting more scared of everything. Yeah, I think it is that real... Um, well, that was something I certainly sought to create was that sort of snowballing effect of... Um, it, you know, when the bad stuff just piles up, um, it feels absolutely immutable and it's exhausting to, to keep waiting through that. And Nick, he really does know Audrey. He even knows what mood she is by the way she wears her hair. <laughs> yeah, well, they've been together for a long time and so he's sort of outside of that immediate set of the three childhood friends. Um, but in a sense, he sort of experiences, you know, memories that he hasn't really participated in because he knows her so well. He says at one time, it, it is hard being in love with the saddest person in the world. Oh. Now, both Audrey and Nick have very, very responsible jobs. <clears throat> well, what does Nick do? Um, he's a paramedic and I, um, I was writing the book around the time of the pay dispute that was ongoing under the previous state government yeah. um, and we, you know, it's now been resolved. But um, I, was, I was constantly... Um, hearing about it in the media and I was doing a lot of research um, and yeah it, it, it I mean I come from a, a family of you know people who work as social workers and counsellors and teachers and nurses um, and it, it, it constantly baffles me when those jobs aren't, aren't recognised in terms of their pay or, mm. or other intrinsic value. And of course the pressure on him you know he's out uh, most accidents happen at night mm. so you know he's, he's often out at night and comes home with horrific stories to tell but he also sort of swaps terrible stories with uh, Audrey. Yeah. Because what does she do? She's a protective worker um, who works with yeah, young young children, a social worker. And, um, yeah, I was just interested in looking at how we normalise um, the kind of minutiae or the trauma, everyday trauma, I guess, um, and how it's when it's part of your job or your day-to-day -day life, um, you have no choice but to normalise it. And so your debrief might be a sentence to your partner or to a friend at the end of the day. And that, that's all you have the emotional space for and all the you have time for. I think one line will stay with me is he, uh, he sort of comes home and says the gore that he's seen. And she said, well, 10-month-old baby, sexually abused. And he said, how do you know? STDs. I think, oh no, oh, God, I wish I hadn't written that. that I've just mm. Anyway, they've both uh, got difficult jobs. They've also um, both got different coping mechanisms. Oh, well, they use the same, really. There's, a, you, as you said, they had a strong community of friends. Uh, live musics and pubs. Yeah, I guess I was writing about, um, I'm writing about people of my age group and it's in no way autobiographical, but... Um, it's certainly of my world, so these jobs and these conversations um, and these locations are familiar I, to me. I loved it. I knew a lot of these pubs, although yeah. I don't often frequent them now. So, you know, from knowledge to a lack of knowledge for me, there's a lot of drug going on, drugs taking and stuff and a whole lot of different substances that I'd never heard of. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't. Um, I certainly didn't write it as a... It, it wasn't intended to be a sort of social commentary, but um, I, I think it, it's... I mean, it's a fairly casual sort of drug-taking... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Then there's year 12 brother Bernie doing more dope than school hours, really. <laughs> um, 
she it, it, it sort of it made her responsible for this young boy. She often found that he was paying for her his rent, mm-hmm. and sometimes he'd go off and spend that rent money on dope, and. So she had the pressure of, this is Audrey, having the pressure of her friend suiciding and also the responsibilities of a mother because what, a, a, what about a mother? Well, her mother um, suffers from, it's not a specified mental illness. Um, I, I wrote it as, um, some, I wrote it as borderline personality disorder, um, although I accept that there's different interpretations um, and I think that Sylvie probably hasn't received a formal diagnosis mm. as a lot of people in that position don't. Um, and so, the, you know, there's this constant tension between um, Audrey, who is in this sort of necessarily in a caregiver role, but she's also the daughter. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes you just want your mum to, to be the mum. Um, and she doesn't, she doesn't always, she often has to sort of play, wear, wear several hats or play several roles within that family. In uh, contrast, she actually at school had to go and live with her best friend, Kate. Mm. This is the girl who suicide with her family. And... This is a quote about um, their family. Kat's family ate dinner together every night. Her parents umpired at weekend netball matches, took orange quarters for girls in their pleated skirts. Audrey's parents destroyed each other. Yeah, it was such a wonderful contrast. Thank you. And um, now visiting, this is visiting um, Kate's mum. She looked the same as she always had, only tired. And Audrey didn't know why she was surprised. What does the mother of a dead girl look like anyway? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So we feel through Audrey's actions and decisions all the stages of grief. Yeah, and I think think it's just... um, It's kind of a study of the way that grief plays out in different ways, um, in different people, and it it truly is... um, a, a disorienting and bizarre experience for anybody at any age and sort of irrespective of their relationship to to the person or people directly affected. So um, Audrey needs, needs change and she actually finds a new sexual partner. You mm. know, it's, it's not a love interest, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> but I think, I, I don't think that's an uncommon... Um, I, there's a lot of talk in there about a sort of unconscious desire to punish oneself for what for what you believe you've done wrong, and I don't think that's an uncommon coping me- mechanism at all. Well, Jennifer Dunn, I think you you explain it beautifully, and I'm sorry to do another reading out of your book. This is uh, Audrey asking Julian, her uh, friend with sex benefits, did you ever argue with your mum or dad and then go out to pick a fight? I mean, you knew you were in the wrong, but instead of apologising, you tried to get your head kicked in. Then you could feel like you're, you've copped the punishment without having to think about what it was for. Yeah, I think that sort of sums up a lot of what people may do. Yeah, I think it's quite common. Yeah. So we see Audrey from, uh, growing from being young and invincible to being open and vulnerable. Now, the story, on an absolutely different <laughs> note, our magic hour. If you've ever dr- driven through Richmond. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a really beautiful art piece um, that sits on, above one of the factories. Somebody told me it was the Sports Girl factory, but I'm not sure if that's true. Um, and it's a, it's a rainbow with the text, our magic hour, and you can see it driving around. Is it Alexandra Parade? Is that yes. The, yeah. Um, sort of from the, if you're looking from the South Yarra side of the river toward Richmond. So why the choice of something so pretty and iconic in such a saddish book? Um, I, th- I, I love the phrase. I used to see it um, commuting home from, from um, uni and I, I love the phrase. I used to look at it most nights. Um, 
but I think the book is also about finding sort of small um, small acts of tenderness or small acts of kindness, um, you know, when everything else is, is, is not going so great or is, um, is falling apart entirely. Um, and so, yeah, if you can find those small quiet moments, that's sometimes enough to salvage things a little bit. That's a lovely way to put it. And I think the other thing that you make out of this book is that in a family, different family members see different things differently. Mm. And I loved how you finished with Bernie, the younger brother, who was, should have been doing more accountancy than artwork, but loved the artwork. His portrait of Audrey at the end. She was Audrey, laughing openly, unexpectantly. So you really have hope. Yeah, I hope so. I hope, I hope that's how you, how you feel when you finish the book. I, I did, <laughs> I did, I did. But I must say I was surprised how much it took out of me. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been speaking with Jennifer Darn, Our Magic Hour, published by Text, and fabulous read. Thank well you done. for Thank having you, me. Jennifer. And you're on 3CR, published or not. Now, Jan, history is not just the past. Events of decades ago rippled through the present and into the future. Such is the case with Ruth Clare's book, Enemy, which looks at the repercussions of the Vietnam War on an Australian family. So, Ruth, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, many listeners that we have would be familiar with the Vietnam War, but can you just fill us in on one of the two one or two details, conscription and things like that, numbers. Yeah, so um, up until Afghanistan, it was actually our longest serving time that we spent in war. Um, and it was also the last time we used conscription. Um, and that conscription ran from 1964 to 1972. And 200,000 Australian men registered their names as part of that scheme. And of those 200,000, 60,000 had their Name their birthdays drawn out of the barrel, and, and then nineteen thousand ended up being sent to Vietnam. And how old were they? Twenty. Twenty. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. very young. Still f- being very formative in terms of development uh, at such a young age, going off to that sort of arena. Just to give you an indication of what they were going into, uh, the men I spoke to who were at Coral, which was one of the battles, on the first night described how four hundred of the enemy chanting a war cry, emerged from the darkness, then thundered into the Australian camp shooting. The flashes of their guns strobed their features so the men could see their faces, their expressions, their weapons. It was intensely up close and personal. Rounds were zinging overhead and everyone was too scared to get out of their pits. The enemy ran through and over the top of the men, managing to take possession of one of their big guns. They were so completely overrun, they had to call an airstrike on their own position. So these young men going into uh, an arena like that. That's the backdrop. There's also another thing you've done in this book. There are two narrative threads uh, in this recollection that you provide, past and present. Now, I'm interested in what you've actually, why you actually did that. Well, for me, the way it worked was that my, my childhood um, memories came fully formed with my own reflections from that time. I couldn't look back and retell those stories without actually including how I thought about them at the time because that's how they stayed embedded in my brain. And so it felt disingenuous to that moment to then add an adult reflection because I wanted to, one of the major things I wanted to show is that we didn't talk about the Vietnam War. We didn't talk about my dad's behavior related to any psychological troubles he was going through 
my entire perception of it was that it was related to me as a child. His punishment was related to what I was doing as a child. And in it wasn't until I became an adult that I began thinking, hang on a minute, maybe his war had something to do with it. And that was way, like, not in my 20s, not until I actually became pregnant with my first child and started feeling warm and gushy about my own child. I thought, how is it that Dad could have treated us that way? What, How can I try and understand mm. his behaviour? So you get sort of a recollection of the past with you as a child and mm. then you as an adult, in many ways, searching for your father and what mm. caused him to behave that way. Mm. Just to give the listener an indication, and this is sort of, well, not even, I'm just taking a paragraph out of a longer episode. Dad set me down hard on my feet, blood pounded in my temples, making my ears throb, and my head kept tumbling from being upside down. He started up where he had left off. Don't whack, run away, whack from me, whack. Listen, whack to what whack I'm saying. Very brutal. Upbringing in many ways. Mm. Um, traumatic. Mm. Yes. Yes. Yes, I think that's probably a good summary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, here's the other go. Um, was he a victim? I mean, well, you, you look at the social era and that wasn't necessarily addressed uh, in terms of these sorts of things are also occurring in public. Dad takes you camping, etc. Mm. But people walk the other way. Mm. Your mother doesn't intervene. Mm. What was the social milieu of the time? What was allowing that to happen in many ways? Well, I think partly the era, and I was born in 1974, I think it was much more um, acceptable for parents to hit their children. I think that was, you know, people often talked about having, you know, not to the probably extent of my dad, but having a few whacks was relatively normal. So I think that was part of it. Um, and it's not like he, he was, you know, hugely brutal in front of others. Um, so, you know, a whack for a child, I think, would have been more acceptable than it is now. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and, you know, in terms of your question, was dad a victim? I think absolutely the way that Vietnam veterans were treated when they got back, the way that they were plucked out of their life, thrown into a conflict that people were mostly disinterested in. You know, they were interested in an abstract way, but it's not... In previous wars, people were on rations. They There was a large group of people over there. They felt engaged in the war in a way that was different with Vietnam. Um, it was... These men felt like they got plucked out of one environment, put into this hellhole, came back to friends who weren't interested in knowing about what had happened to them. Mm. Well, I mean, you mentioned, for example, that post-traumatic stress disorder was not heard of at that time. No. So there, there was no sort of awareness of what they were going through. Just to give an indication, uh, this is in your recollection of meeting somebody who had uh, was explaining what these men had gone through in terms of their training. He turned his attention to the partners of the soldiers who were part of the session as well. For those of you who haven't been in the military, what you've got to train a soldier to do is to actually walk toward the car that is coming towards you because that is what you have to do in an ambush, to turn into it. Now, you tell me, is that a normal, natural thing to do? Your whole body is saying, get away, get away, get away, but you have to be so well trained that you override that. This process changes your fight and flight, but then it changes how you behave in the normal world too. That's right. I, I've been contacted by quite a few veterans since this book has come out, and um, one of the people who contacted me said that his brother, who was a Vietnam veteran, said they know how to turn us on, but they don't know how to turn Turns us off on. again. Well, the other interesting fact 
was the, the period of counselling. There is counselling now available. Mm. How long does that go for? Well, I think now, like, you know, a veteran has access to all of that counselling, um, but it's often, you know, 20, 30 years past the conflict that mm. there might be the first time that they seek that counselling, certainly for the Vietnam War. And I, I've spoken about, you know, the current day veterans and I was asking somebody recently what their um, process is and they said that they can nominate to have counselling if they feel that they're... But I've also heard a lot of other veterans, current day serving veterans that say, you know, in the army, if you're flagged as having psychological, then you're not fit for deployment. And then other people have said, if you don't deploy, there's no place for you in the army. So it feels like, yeah, sure, I'm going to put my hand up and then I'm going to have no job. But is, is that counselling available for the family as well? It, it There is, um, the, currently says on the website that it's up to age of 26. So children of veterans can have counselling up to the age of 26. And I know that I'm an anomaly. I got counselling very young, not paid for by the government, paid for out of my own pocket, and I had a lot of counselling. But most people wouldn't, it would be when they're in their 40s that they might consider going to counselling. It's 26 is... And it's also, as you say, or as you indicated in your book, it's only when you became pregnant. So it's another life-changing event mm. that causes you to look back on the events of the past. And if your trauma is in childhood and you look at what your trigger is, your trigger is children. Mm. You know, because it's when your children are little that you flash back to when you're that age mm. and you start to feel these feelings, either your parents' feelings toward what you were. It's really confusing. Mm. There's also repercussions for um, your mother because basically um, your parents separate but your mother goes to pieces. Mum lays sprawled face down on the floral-covered sofa we had for guests who never came. The foam sections of the couch had come unstacked, making her position teetering on the edge, spilling over onto the floor, looking even more precarious. She was crying, more than crying. She was sobbing great racking howls of despair from the pit of her stomach. The four-litre cask of Coolabar Riesling on the floor next to her thickened the air with the sweet, rancid smell of fermented grapes. So the repercussions were devastating. Absolutely devastating for mum. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, again, she was a product of her time in terms of being, well, compliant with the man of the household. That's right. But it devastated her. Mm. Um, and your father then left. Yeah. Yeah. So that happened once, once, basically, once dad left, I was pretty relieved actually to have him out of the house and then it was less than a week later I came home to find mum sprawled on the couch drunk and that was pretty much it for mum she was pretty much just drunk every day um, from then on periods of sobriety you know once she moved to Brisbane for a while but now she's got um, alcoholic dementia and she lives in home so she didn't really stop didn't cope didn't cope well at no. all. Um, but then, again, getting back to this notion of then your father as a victim, it's a bit hard to see, given how he's treated his children, uh, his family, going off living with somebody else and the way he treated the kids from that, uh, who were, that came into that relationship. But he dies of cancer. What can you tell us about that? Well, so he died of cancer at age 52, and they said that it was likely... Um, related to his exposure to Agent Orange. 
um, which a lot of veterans and their children have had um, ongoing health issues from their exposure to all the chemicals um, of that war. So um, he certainly was a victim in that way. But I think it's also important, I think it's hard to understand someone else's psychological state if it's not something you've ever had or experienced. And when they act out in a way that they feel is not themselves and is part of a disorder, it's hard to, you know, you ha I think a lot of people think of themselves as two people. It's mm. the person in the grip of that and then the person who they really are. But in many ways, he didn't stand a chance, mm. nor did his wife, nor did the family. No. Because, it, you know, at 20, taken into that unnatural zone, trained in a way that... Um, changes their personality, mm. they come back, they don't know how to behave, and then ultimately he dies of, of a cancer linked to Agent Orange. What's your response, that conversation you had um, with Brenda's son? Yeah. What was your response there and what you did? Was that the part, which, which part? You that laughed. Oh, when, well, basically he said to me that... Um, when Dad had left our family and he's moved in with his mum, that he'd actually hit Brenda mm. and also her children. And he told me a story of one day Dad was hitting his brother and then he got in on the act and said, take me on too. And then all the brothers, there were three brothers, and they all got in and then they started beating Dad up. And I thought that was absolutely hilarious. But at the same time, there's an ambivalence there in that response, which I think gets to the crux of the book. Oh, well, it doesn't matter, I said, trying to lighten the moment. He's dead now. He laughed and I joined in. Probably shouldn't say that. Our laughing increased into hysteria and I doubled over, hands on my knees to draw in breath. Once we quietened down, I was walloped with guilty sobs. I am sad too. Of course you are, Ruth. He's your dad. Sometimes I wished I could just hate dad, but mostly it felt easier to believe I hated him rather than face up to the fact that, despite everything, I had spent my life loving him, longing for him, while he had barely noticed I was alive, my enemy, my beloved, my father. So in many ways, this book is a search for the father you've wanted. Mm. But in some ways, he was lost to you, given what he went through. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's. I, and I think I, I've heard recently some people talking about um, how mean children are to, you know, ignore their parents in nursing homes. And there seems to be this notion that children are naturally just, I don't know, selfish takers and, you know, being mean to their parents. And I think it takes a hell of a lot to override that instinct to love your parent. Hmm. You know, I, I, anyone who is, is calling quits on that relationship, something's happened. Hmm. And I, I think it's, um, I loved my father, even though I never wanted him to know that. But there's, there's that marvellous scene where, uh, with the eucalyptus trees, you found mm. something he enjoyed and you were able to participate in. Mm. Mm. Um, so that sharing is possible, mm. but it was then undercut um, brutally at times. It, uh, there are positives. I mean, there are scenes in the book you take on the headmaster of your school to run a social. There are boys that are chasing you at one time. You just turn around and say, Leave me alone, sort of thing. <laughs> that determination, that strength, do you think it was because of your upbringing or because of uh, your own personality? I think I am have been born pretty feisty um, and that my experience has just strengthened that, um, that 
I've I've never identified with being a victim. That's never I've just gone. That's not me. And so, therefore, most of my response in life, anytime I feel fragile, is to make myself strong. Mm. And being very fortunate being in that position because mm. some people don't have that mm. strength uh, necessarily. I'm afraid I'm going to have to in- end the interview there. We will, we but, will. Um, Enemy, a daughter's story of how her father brought the Vietnam War home by Ruth Claire. And, and look, there were so many similarities with some of the uh, life trauma, circumstances. Well, yeah, normalising trauma. Mm. I picked that up and yeah. signalled it. And, and necess- necessity for counselling, I think mm. that came <laughs> Yeah, and it's a penguin book. Mm. Okay, and I was chatting with Jennifer Down, Our Magic Hour, and it was the text, pu- the text publication. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. We'll have more authors. <laughs>